The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name's John, and I'm one of the pastors here at Westway Christian Church. I'd love for you to go ahead and open your Bible to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you, you can look on the inside of your bulletin and it'll tell you what page uh, 2 Samuel 11 is on. I was asked the other night by someone, why, why don't we put the, like, the words of the Bible that we're reading from up on the screen? Why don't, why don't we do that? And then very quickly the person said, I think it's because you probably want people to be reading from their Bibles. And I was like, yes, that's why. We want, we want you to see where, where the things that we talk about, where that comes from. We want you to know that we're not making any of this stuff up. And you, as, as the church body, you are one of the pieces of accountability for us as we teach to hold us accountable to what God's word says. And I know there are many different translations that, that we might use or many different versions that we might use. But we want you to follow along in, in your Bible, if you have one. Um, if you don't have one, we want to get you one. And if you don't have one, we want you to be able to follow along just so you can see where, where the things we talk about, where that all comes from. Um, we'd love for you to text thoughts and questions that you have from our message today to the number that's on the screen. And each Tuesday morning at 11.15, we go to our church Facebook page and we answer those questions um, and talk about other things. We've been talking um, all summer long about the Ten Commandments. And I hope that you are experiencing what I'm experiencing which is being obedient to God isn't exactly as easy as we think it should be. There is far more to these commandments, there's far more to God's word than the way we typically look at that. And one of the questions that I hear a lot from both Christians and non-Christians is, why are there so many laws in the Bible? Maybe you've wondered that question. Why? Why are there so many rules? Why are there so many laws in the Bible? The Old Testament alone has 613 laws, and if we were to add to those 613 the things that Jesus said, the the commands and the instructions that Jesus gave, and we were to add to those ones all of the things that the different letters, the writers of the letters added, there would probably be more than a thousand commands. Thou shalt not, thou shalt, what we're supposed to do. So this is a very fair question for us. And it's helpful to remember that there weren't always so many laws. In fact, in the beginning, in Genesis um, chapter 2 and chapter 3, we read that there's, there's exactly one law. You can eat of any tree in the garden except for the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man couldn't even keep that one law. And in my mind, I imagine they violated it about day two um, after, they, after they were created. Moses got ten laws, and the very next thing that happened, if you read through the book of Exodus, after receiving those ten laws, the ten commandments that we've been talking about here on the wall behind me, um, the first thing the Israelites do is have a drunken, sex-crazed raver at the bottom of Mount Sinai. They just 
went crazy and they violated pretty much, I think, every single one of these Ten Commandments. And if we read through the first five books of the Bible, what we'll find is this. We'll find the rhythm of a law that's given, and then that law is violated, and then more, at, more laws are given, and then there's more violation. And we see this throughout the entire Old Testament. More law equals more violation. So people who would have us believe that man is basically decent are clearly and unequivocally wrong. We are broken to the core. And more laws only increase the amount of opportunity that each one of us has to violate God's commands, to reveal ourselves as truly who we are which is people who have rejected our creator. And Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30 has it right when he says, what man is in need of is not more laws. What man is in need of is a new heart, is a changed heart, something different. And there are so many laws because we're in need of restraint. We are in need of restraint. We talked about this last week. Um, Jesus said that especially the law of divorce from Moses, that was given because of the people's hardened hearts. So when we look at all of these laws, we have laws because we are hardened to God. And even the slightest violation of any of God's commands has repercussions that spread far beyond anything that we would like. They don't just stay with us. And each one of us, all of us, have paid the price of our own brokenness. We've paid the price of our own lack of righteousness. And we've also paid the price of the lack of righteousness of other people. And that was Joe's story a few weeks ago. His brother was murdered. And that those thoughts and feelings and challenges and sin, that affected other relationships. It, went just outside. it wasn't just limited to Joe's brother in the way that it affected their entire family. So our sin doesn't stay, doesn't stay local. I saw something last week. Um, in, 19, or excuse me, in 2018, China was home to more than 440 million pigs. That is 57% of the world's population of pigs. Last August, African swine fever began to spread, and since then, more than 22% of the Chinese pig herd has either died due to this disease or they have been culled to prevent its spread. But what started in China isn't staying there. African swine fever has gone to Mongolia, it's gone to Russia, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Vietnam has been forced to cull 2 million of their own 30 million pigs. And it's not just Asia. Tourists to China have taken this back to them, back to Romania and Poland, where it's spreading among wild boar. This has put a lot of smaller pork producers out of business. And by the end of the year, the prediction is China's going to lose almost 200 million pigs. This is being called the largest animal disease outbreak in history. It's not transmittable to humans, but that's not, that's not the concern of this disease. You can probably guess what it is. It's, it's financial. We haven't seen much in price increase yet for pork, but that's partly because 
It takes three months for the gestational period for a pig is three months, and then it takes six months for them to be ready to be sold to the market where they're, where they're slaughtered and we all get our bacon from, right? That's how that works. Well, lean hog futures, next year's prices are up anywhere from 12 to 35%. So we don't see that right now, so it's not a problem for us, but at some point... We are going to pay more for our food. In a globalized economy, no problem is stay local, and that's exactly what happens with sin. Our sin doesn't stay local. Our sin doesn't just stay with me, and it doesn't just stay with you. Let's look at Second Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after, after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Some of you are thinking this would have been a good topic for last week when we talked about adultery. But this isn't, this isn't adultery like we normally think of adultery. I want you to imagine for a moment the, the power imbalance that's present in this story. Bathsheba was the daughter of or the husband, wife of Uriah, excuse me, daughter of Eliam, two of David's mighty men. So they worked for David. David was the king. Could Bathsheba say no? Could she refuse what's taking place? This whole situation has hashtag me too all over it. He's supposed to be at war, and instead he's at home and he's taking naps. Like Eve in the garden, he sees something that he wants. He sees something that looks desirable, and he reaches out, and he takes it without considering any of the consequences. In the New Testament book of James, James writes this, Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us, and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So David has a problem right now. Bathsheba is pregnant. And this is, this is where the sin, like the African swine flu, very quickly begins to spread. Let's continue, beginning at verse 6. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. 
So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah the Hittite replied, The ark and the enemies of Israel and Judah, armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in the open fields. How can I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here tomorrow, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem, and then the next. And David invited him to dinner and got him drunk, but even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. At this point, we all know the question that, Uri- that David is asking. Why? Why won't Uriah just go home and sleep with his wife? And isn't that like us? When the walls of the realities of our sin begin to close in on us, don't we start blaming other people? Do you see how David shifts the blame to Uriah? Why won't he sleep with his wife? Because he feels this coming in. And I wonder if we remember, again, that scene in the garden. Adam, did you eat the fruit I told you to avoid? And what was Adam's response? That woman you gave me, she gave it to me. And what was Eve's response? The serpent deceived me. The other day, Ann and I went to, went to Bridgeport for a couple appointments, and one of the things we went to was the cupcake place, Call Me Cupcake, which if you're ever in Bridgeport, you should go to Call Me Cupcake. And she ordered this, this peanut butter uh, chocolate cupcake with a peanut butter cup on the top of it. And as we were eating, like, I noticed that the peanut butter cup was close to the edge of her plate, like, facing me. So, um, so I took it, right? I mean, because that's what you do, right? That's what I thought that she, that she wanted. Um, and when she noticed it was gone and asked me what happened to her peanut butter cup, that's what I told her. I said, oh, I thought you gave it to me. And she was like, why, were you, why would you think that? I would never give you this peanut butter cup. But I was blaming her for my choice. And one of the things that, that we have to ask in light, in light of what's going on in this text is, is who do you blame for your sinful choices? Who do you blame for your sinful choices? Who do you try to trick into taking responsibility for your sinful choices? Because that's what David's doing with Uriah here. He's, he's trying to trick him into taking responsibility. There's an interesting little scene that happens the previous book in 1 Samuel chapter 21. I'm just going gonna, gonna to read this to you. 
Before David became king, he was on the run from the previous king, a guy by the name of Saul. And at one point, David and his men went to the priests in search of bread. And the priest offered him the holy bread on one condition. He said, you can have this bread on one condition. None of your men, neither you or your men, must have recently slept with any women. Okay, that was the condition of receiving this bread. And listen to David's response for a moment. Don't worry. I never allow my men to be with women while we are on a campaign. David was there with his mighty men. Two of his mighty men were Bathsheba's father and Bathsheba's husband. Why wouldn't Uriah sleep with Bathsheba? Because David wouldn't allow it. Uriah was far more faithful to David than David was to Uriah. He didn't sleep with his wife because he was following orders. What did he say? The ark and the enemies of Israel, armies of Israel and Judah are out in the mud and grit and grime. Who am I to, who am I to go home and eat good food and drink good wine and have sex with my wife? Who am I to do that? What do you think David's thinking at this point? Feel this guilt starting to pile on in his life? And that's the reality for some of us. We're up to our necks in sin. What are we going to do about that? What's it going to take? Well, let's see what David does. Verse 14, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest. Then pull back so he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. When the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, why would the troops go so close to the city? Didn't they know that they would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? Then tell him Uriah the Hittite was killed too. So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said, and as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son. But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Do you see how glib David is in this scene? How did this 
How did this get out of hand so fast? David wakes up from his nap and he sees Bathsheba and he has sex with her and he impregnates her. And the next thing he knows, he has one of his most loyal soldiers murdered to cover up his sin. See, sin dulls our senses and it ruins our ability to detect evil. Constant sin dulls our senses and it ruins our ability to detect evil. I want you to think back to what James wrote. Temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. David's response to his own sin is really similar to my own response to my own sin too often. And isn't it, isn't it yours? When we, when we sin, we kind of write it off. We move on in our lives. Like we read the end of this and, and we see Bathsheba moves into the palace and she becomes David's wife. Crisis averted. The end justifies the means. David's made an honest woman out of Bathsheba. But did you notice the end of verse 27? But the Lord was displeased with what David had done. Let's continue in chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then David, Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you've done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give you your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all of Israel. See, God confronted David because he loved David. God loves each and every one of us. 
so much that he will refuse to allow our sin to go unaddressed. He will refuse to allow us to go undisciplined. God confronts us with our sin. And he does it through his word, and he does it on Sunday mornings here, and he does it when we are in relationship with other Christians. He does it through prayer. He does it through song. The Holy Spirit uses our conscience to convict us of our sin. And part of our problem, I think, is is we like to have way too much control over our own environments. Right? When it gets too hot at home, we turn the air conditioner on. When it gets too cold at home, we turn the heat on. And when we start to feel conviction by God, what we do is we turn that off. We flee from that conviction. Because we don't want to hear it. We don't want to feel bad for our sin. And, you know, I don't want to feel bad for my sin. But God loves me, and he loves you too much to allow your sin and my sin to go unaddressed. I remember many years ago, I was talking with someone who wanted to serve in our student ministry, and she was living with her fiancé before she got married. And when I asked her about that, this is what she told me. I grew up knowing this was wrong, but it's right for us. Now before we all sit in judgment over this person. At least she was being honest. At least she was self-aware enough to know that what she was doing was clearly in the wrong. And I would say that many of us lack that self-awareness. James also wrote this, remember it's a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. There are a whole host of things that every single one of us as Christians know that we are supposed to do. We know. We're supposed to give and we get to serve and we get to gather together. We get to love those who are unlike us. But don't we turn a blind eye to those things? Don't we not want to be held accountable? Like we read these words and we don't want to be held accountable to it. What would it be like for us to not just trust our conviction and trust in the conviction, but for us to seek it out? That's what Shane was talking about a little earlier. I'm learning to be grateful, honestly, for conviction when I feel it. Because it's a demonstration, it's a tangible demonstration that God is in pursuit of me and God wants to address the sin that's in my life. Because I need that conviction. Because if I don't have that conviction, then I just do what I want. And I don't, I don't want to do what I want. I want to do what God wants me to do. And I need, I need his instruction. I need him to tell me that. I need him to communicate that to me. And part of that comes through conviction. And the strange thing in all of this is, is that somewhere David was called a man after God's own heart. And I think we have to wrestle with that. But I read something that, that helped me understand that earlier this week. David's been called a man after God's own heart, not because he was perfect, but because his love for the Lord and the Lord's ways was the driving force in his life when we observe his entire life. 
What's the, what's the driving force of your entire life? Don't you want that same thing to be said of you? As a Christian, don't you want to hear that you are a person after God's own heart? I don't think there could be a higher achievement or accomplishment than that. And with conviction, we, we often find consequences. And this story's not over. Let's begin at verse 13 in chapter 12. Then David confessed to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill, they said. What, a dra- what drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you've stopped your mourning and are eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was still alive, for I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the, let the child live. But why should I fast when he's dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. I think the thing that bothers me the most about this aspect of the story is probably the thing that bothers you the most is there's a clear consequence and punishment for sin. It's clear. Because their baby didn't do anything wrong. But David did. We're offended when we see a consequence. Especially when it affects someone other than ourselves. But the question we have to ask is how many things have you done that have affected other people and you never paid a consequence for? You never paid a punishment for it. See, David committed this sin and it wasn't just the theft. It wasn't just the sexual act. It wasn't just the murder. Nathan said that David had shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord. That, that's what this is about. He, he didn't have this. But he had, he had scrolls with the words of the Lord on it. He had the law. He knew what he was supposed to do as a king, and he had contempt for it. He treated it disrespectfully. He cast it aside like it was completely worthless. See, David knew the difference between right and wrong. And he chose wrong. David knew what pleased God and what offended God, and David chose to offend God. And he had a number of chances in this story. At any point, David could have chosen not to sin. And in each and every instance, 
he ignored what God had said, and he did what he wanted to do. And, and we look at this, and we think this is so unfair. And this is a terrible story. It's true. And sin has ramifications beyond the original parties to that sin. That's just reality. It's truth. And we've all experienced that. Our sins affect the lives of other people. Even when we think they don't. Even when we think they can't. Even when we get away with our sin. The sinful choices that we make affect the lives of other people. They poison those relationships. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I need some good news. Shane and I were talking a little bit about this earlier today, of the different TV shows that we, that we watch on Netflix or Amazon Prime. And he was telling me about, about one story, and he said, yeah, it's kind of like this, and, but it really got dark and I said, yeah, I'm one of those people, like, when I watch a, when I watch a movie, I need to, like, there has to be a character that I like. There has to be some redemption somewhere in this. Then David, this is verse 24, Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. David named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, as the Lord commanded. Don't miss this. Don't miss what's happening here. Because David repented, David found redemption. This is not an end justifies the means. This is not, well, David made an honest woman out of Bathsheba and it all worked out in the end. Because that's how I think a lot of us think. It's the space that we are caught up in. We don't get caught and something good happens and we wipe our brows and we're done with it. But that's not redemption. Redemption comes because David repented of his sin. And that's what each and every one of us need is redemption. We don't need to just not get caught We don't need to just not be found out in our sin. What we need is redemption. And there's still a lot of consequences. I would, I would, I've urged you to read a lot of different things over the past 10 weeks. I would urge you to read through the rest of 2 Samuel. Because as I've done that over the last couple weeks, like the word that comes to mind, it's just a tragedy. It's like an utter disaster of family relationships, all because David took something that wasn't his. I mean, we, like on the scale of these sins on the wall behind us, like compared to murder, stealing's probably not so bad. I mean, at least in our, like the way we rationalize our sin, right? But did you see how quickly stealing led to murder? Did you see how fast that all happened? Repentance mean that we, means that we love God so much that we agree with him about the truth of our sin. And we turn from it when we see it. Without repentance, there's no redemption. And without redemption in this story, there's no Solomon. 
And if you look at the genealogy found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, you'll see the name Bathsheba. Because God is in the business of making beautiful things out of ugly things. God is in the business of redeeming people. And if you're a Christian, he has done that in your life. You should rejoice and praise God for that. And when you feel conviction of your sin, you should not flee from that. I would say you should run to that conviction. You should embrace that conviction because God loves you so much that he won't allow you to continue in your sin. He loves you. And he's telling you what's wrong in your life and don't flee from that. Be thankful that he's pursuing you. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, what I think you need to hear is you cannot out-sin God's grace. You can't out-sin God's grace. Like, no matter what you've done, no matter up on that wall, whatever you've, you've broken on that law, or the thousand other things that you could have violated from Scripture, you haven't out-sinned God's grace. It's not that he doesn't care about what you've done, because he does. He just cares more about you than to identify you as lost and hopeless because of what you've done. And he's offering redemption for you. And that only comes through repentance. And that repentance only comes through Jesus Christ. That is the pathway forward. See, God's grace is given to David and Bathsheba far beyond what they could ever hope to deserve. And this is what God offers to every single one of us. Something more than we could ever hope to have. Something more that we could certainly ever hope to deserve. I want you to hear two things. I want you to hear that there is no minor violation of God's law. There's no minor violation. God knows. And he loves you and wants to save you from that. And the second thing is, is that salvation is available. And it's available through repenting to confessing our sin to God, agreeing with him that our sin is, is against him. Our sin is wicked. Our sin is evil. And he is offering you a way out, and that is through Jesus. Let's pray. God, we read this story and we just see the effects of, of sin and how it cascades all over other people. But we don't even have to read the story. We can just look in our own lives and know that the things that we have done cascade onto other people's lives. This is the common human experience. You take, you take your law seriously. You take our violation of your law seriously, and you desire to be in relationship with us. God, convict us of our sin. When we feel that conviction, don't, don't let us flee, but bring us to you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.